0: Well, as many of you know, I have the privilege of getting a minister to the young adults at our church, and it's normal that during their stage that they, many of them are contemplating marriage and are uh, getting engaged, and so one of the wonderful joys and privileges that, I, uh, that Amy and I get to, to help out with is that we get to lead them through premarital and pre-engagement counseling, and it's fun to get to do that with my wife because she has a counseling background, and we obviously love and enjoy having people in our homes, and so it's a, it's a great gift and honor for us to be able to do that. Well, sometimes, occasionally, whenever we're, we're having this time with these young adults, we, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have the opportunity to share one of my favorite marriage illustrations. It's an illustration that is not my own, but it comes actually from uh, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and in it, his wife Kathy describes this moment called a godly tantrum. Some of you may be fam- familiar with it, but uh, if you're not, I'll, I'll share it with you now. The, the way the story goes is that Tim and, and Kathy had just moved to New York City to plant Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church. And uh, they, had, they knew going into this that planning the church was going to take a lot of extra time and investment. And so they agreed to a three-year kind of term that Tim was going to have some longer hours in investing into uh, this church plant in order to kind of get it off the ground. Well, three years, come and go. Uh, and uh, the hours have not changed. Kathy confronts Tim and t- kind of says, or not does, doesn't confront, but asks him about it and says, hey, when are we going to kind of move back our hours and have a little more normalcy? And he said, well, I have a few more obligations I need to fulfill, and then maybe in a few months we can, we can bring it back. Well, a few months roll by. Same thing happens. Well, eventually, some months go by, and Kathy has had enough. And so uh, Tim kind of re- tells the story. He comes home. He notices the balcony door is open, and outside he finds his wife Kathy with a hammer in her hand and wedding china on the ground, and she is uh, one by one smashing the wedding china uh, on the ground, and Tim, of course, sees this. He's shocked, uh, at what he sees, he thinks that his wife is maybe having a mental breakdown of some sort. So he's coming in, he comes to confront her. And uh, it turns out that this was no mental breakdown at all. In fact, it was uh, very methodical. Uh, it was meant to shock Tim Uh, because he wasn't hearing her. He wasn't listening to her. Uh, And so it turns out this China, by the way, is uh, there was was three plates that were extra, and the cups had broken at some point during during their life together, their marriage together. And so these were just extras that really didn't have a a pair to go with it. So she really had three attempts to kind of get his attention. Thankfully, it worked. he he listened. They were able to make an adjustment and, and move forward uh, with uh, a little bit of uh, normalcy. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus isn't necessarily going to smash China per se, but he is going to shock us, uh, and, to, and he's going to do so in order to get our attention. I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is Luke five verse seventeen through twenty six. And they let him down with the bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home, glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have truly seen extraordinary things today. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we ask that you would use this time to, to speak to our hearts, to, to shock us into understanding your forgiveness and your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, just to give us, to set the scene, Jesus, at this point had already begun his ministry, it's early on. Uh, He had done some teaching, he had healed some of the sick, he's even cleansed a leper, Uh, he has um, called some of his disciples, and his popularity had begun to spread so much that crowds had started to come and follow him wherever he went. And we're told in verse 17 that on one particular day, Jesus was teaching in someone's house. Mark's gospel gives us a little bit of extra details. We're told that this was in a house. This house was located in Capernaum. And so in this house, Jesus' is teaching and and present in the house, we're told, were some Pharisees. These were the, the religious experts. These were the theologians, if you were. And they were here to listen to Jesus and hear what he had to say. Well, with them was a large crowd, and we're told that these people had come from all over. They came from every village in Galilee and Judea and even as far as Jerusalem. And then in verse 18, we're told that there's a group of men. Mark, once again, gives us some more details. We're told that there there's four men. Uh, and these four men came in and they were bringing with them on a bed a paralyzed friend on a bed. And they were hoping to put him before Jesus, presumably to be healed. However, the crowd was, you know, obviously there's a lot of people there. They had a hard time getting to Jesus. So desperate to get their friend before Jesus, they decide to climb a staircase that went along the side of the, the house, and they made their way to the flat roof. And their plan was that they were going to dig through the tiles of the roof and lower their friend before Jesus. I want you just to kind of visualize the scene with me just for a minute. This is a very dramatic scene. It's a very shocking scene. Um, It's not something you see every single day. Uh, Here, Jesus, again, is teaching the Pharisees the teachers of the law are here, they're, they're listening, they're clinging, they're thinking on every single word that he has, and, and the crowd is gathered, the room is filled, you know, presumably these people have traveled from all over, maybe they even got there early to kind of get the best possible spot so that they could hear Jesus teach and expound the word, and then all of a sudden you hear thuds on the roof, and debris begins to fall, and pieces of tile and clay begin to drop on your head, and then all of a sudden, a beam of light comes shining through, and the, and the owner of the house is like, what is going on, right? And the hole gets bigger, and all of a sudden, four faces pop out, and it's the four friends. And once the hole's big enough, you see this body being lowered down on a bed with ropes, into the center of a crowded room. Just a typical day in 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 uh, Capernaum, right? Not at all. This was bold. This was surprising. And this was crazy. And yet what's remarkable about this whole thing is how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't notice, he doesn't rebuke the men he doesn't correct them. He doesn't tell them to hit the road. Instead, his first and immediate response when he sees their faith is to reward their faith. I don't want you to miss this. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. We can, we can look at it's, you know, we, we can look at a sunset, we can look at a hurricane, we can look at the majestic mountains and we can learn about God, but there is no better way to learn about the Father than through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet here we see it on full display. Jesus sees these four men, he sees their desperation, he sees their commitment to their, to their hurting friend, he sees their faith, and he has compassion on them. He doesn't see them as an inconvenience. He's not annoyed by them. He doesn't dismiss their need. Instead, he sees them, and he rewards their faith. Now, we could stop here, and this would be a beautiful and powerful story of God's uh, compassion and of a friend's his faithfulness, uh, but to do so would miss a bigger and greater point. What's going to happen next is going to shock the whole room, We're told that when Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of these four men plus this paralytic, when he saw their faith, in response, he said to the paralyzed men, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine the friends just kind of thinking to themselves, wait, what? Did he just say their sins are forgiven? Does, Does he not know? And they're like kind of whispering, trying to like hint to Jesus like, his legs, his legs, they, they don't work. They need to be healed. And, and Jesus kind of, you can imagine him responding back to him like, no, I know. I said, your sins are forgiven. Meanwhile, everyone's kind of scratching their head. They're probably confused. But Jesus knew exactly what he was saying that day. Jesus was well aware of this man's condition and brokenness, but Jesus saw further. When Jesus saw this man, he he perceived not just this man's felt need, but he perceived his truest and his greatest need. Jesus, the great physician, saw past the surface, and he saw into this man's heart and soul. He didn't just see a man who was paralyzed physically, but he saw a man who was paralyzed spiritually. It's worth noting that Jesus does eventually go on to heal this man. To Je- you know, it wasn't that he, he didn't see this man's hurt, he didn't see or care for his physical needs, right? It was that those things were secondary to what he needed most. To Jesus, this man's truest and greatest needs, as well as ours, was forgiveness for our sins, and Jesus was willing to make him whole. Well, if this was surprising to the friends, then Jesus' words would have been utterly shocking to the Pharisees. When Jesus said and spoke the words, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, he was making a very serious and a very bold claim. And so when the Pharisees heard this, they became indignant, and they said to themselves in their hearts, they said, "Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone?" For the Pharisees to say, for the Pharisees, to say that you could forgive sins was both arrogant and blasphemous. Remember, Judaism was, and always has been, monotheistic. The Shema was something that they recited daily. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. There is one God and one alone. And the concept of the Trinity wasn't on their radar. They they didn't have this concept of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that. And so to the idea of Jesus being God just didn't compute. It didn't make sense for them. But what we're, we're going to see in a few minutes is that the proof is in the pudding. In the remaining verses, I want you to just to notice a few things. First, notice Jesus' perception. Verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Notice, Jesus sees their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're questioning in their heart. He knows that they don't believe what he's saying. This is the first clue that Jesus maybe uh, can back up this claim after all. Okay, that's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice is this. Notice the question, the second question in verse 23. He says, "'Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk?' Now, this is a very interesting question, because in one sense, it's easy to say both. Your sins are forgiven, rise and walk, right? I just did. It's easy. Well, another way you can kind of look at this question is that Jesus is acknowledging that one of these statements is verifiable, and one of them isn't. You can verify, right, whether someone's legs have been healed and restored, but you can't verify whether someone's sins have been forgiven. And so, in order to prove the unverifiable miracle of forgiveness, he's going to perform a verifiable one. Look at verse 24. But, or in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, He rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on. He went home glorifying God in amazement, seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. As a proof of his divinity, Jesus takes this visible outward sign of healing and he uses it to prove the invisible sign of forgiveness. If, you, if he can help this man's paralysis, then he most certainly can forgive his sins. Here's the point of this whole story uh, in a nutshell. All of us have this stain that we cannot get rid of. We have this guilt that we carry with us. This burden that we cannot shake. And despite our best efforts, despite our education, our moral record, uh, being able to afford the best therapist, money can buy, we can't get rid of it. But what we discover in this passage is that there is one who can. If you read on, you will see that this forgiveness, this cleansing, is going to come at a great cost to the Lord. It's going to cost him his, his life. When the few minutes I have left, I just want to drill down on this point of forgiveness, okay? I want to speak to you just pastorally for a few minutes. In our text, the Pharisees struggled to believe the claim that Jesus was divine, that he was God. They just could not comprehend it. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. Well, similarly, I think there's some of us who really struggle to believe that Jesus can forgive our sins. We struggle to believe that God's forgiveness can cover what we've done. Some of you in this room struggle to trust God's forgiveness because you just assume that God's love has limitations, like us. And we need to see God the Father through Jesus the Son. We need to see his compassion. We need to see his willingness. We need to see his empathy. We need to see the extent to which he will go in order to forgive your sins. But there's some of you in this room who I think struggle to trust God's forgiveness because there is this daily reminder. There's this haunting in your mind that comes from shame and guilt that you feel and you just cannot shake it. And maybe this is from something that you did decades ago. And Jesus wants to speak to you he wants to to tell you about the forgiveness of God. you know perhaps these things happen because uh, from the, it, this guilt and shame comes from maybe words that you spoke in a moment of anger that left someone with really deep and gaping wounds. perhaps maybe this was an action that just can 't be undone, that you know that you know has drastically altered someone else 's life. maybe it 's past. Relationships you've abused, boundaries you've pushed, weaknesses you've exploited. That you know have caused a lifetime of pain. For these things, we can't change them. We can't undo them. But I want to remind you of God's power and wisdom. Revelation 21 says this, and I want this to be a healing balm on your soul. In this passage, we get a snapshot of who God is and what what awaits us. He says, He who is seated on the throne of God said, Behold, I am making all things new. And on that day, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What this passage tells us, what it reassures us, is that some way, somehow, God is going to restore what is broken, what is damaged, and what is lost. And when he does, again, some way and somehow, it's going to be a million times better than anything we could ever imagine. In the end, everything is going to be made right. Everything sad is going to be made untrue. And you may say to me, well, Chris, that sounds wonderful. That sounds beautiful, but I don't, you just don't understand the kind of damage and the kind of hurt and the consequences I've caused in someone's life. And in your inability to believe and in your doubt, we need to be reminded of the, God's words to Job. Remember the story of Job? He had suffered many things unimaginable. He had lost his, his livestock, his, his possessions, his wealth, his servants, and even his, his, his precious family. He himself was stricken with great suffering and physical pain. And so confused, he, he wanted his day in court with God. He wanted to hear from God. And one day Job got his answer and it came in the form of a whirlwind. And that whirlwind came down and it came down with a bunch of rhetorical questions. And this is what he says. I'm just going to read a few of them. He says, God says this to Job. Who is this? That darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way and do they report to you? Here we are. I tell you, adorn yourself with glory and splendor, clothe yourself with honor and majesty, and then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. At the end of the day, we need to know that you and I are not God. His wisdom and his power exceed our own. And there's no clearer place to see that than the cross. I can ask you, what is the single worst hist- or worst event in all of human history? And the response would be, the cross. And yet I can also ask you the same question, what is the single best event in all of history? And the answer would also be, the cross. At the cross, Jesus' mercy and justice meet in a way that we can't really wrap our minds around. God's wisdom far exceeds our own. And I'm going to leave you with this quote. Many of you are familiar with it, but it's a wonderful quote from Spurgeon. He says this, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, We must trust his heart. This is what I want to leave you with this morning. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we we bow our heads acknowledging your wisdom and your power. It's beyond anything we could ever imagine or think. Father, we are unworthy in every single way of your grace, your gifts, and your, your mercy. And yet you lavishly pour out these things on us. Father, help us to trust these things. Help us to, to look to you in our times of, of doubt and, and struggle. And would you, by your Holy Spirit, reassure our hearts and help us to trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.